0: Today, we're going to be having a Bible study dealing with the heart. Uh, The title of the Bible lesson is The Marks of a Pure Heart. There's a number of passages that deal with this topic, and there's a variety of places that we can go. I've got a lot of verses. I don't think I'll probably read quite all of them that I have in my notes, If there's ever a day in the biblical calendar, if there's ever a time in the year that we ought to really try to examine our own hearts, then probably today would be that day. So I pray that this morning, as we make our way through this lesson, and we consider the marks of a pure heart, that you might do a lot of reflection of your own self and consider what I've got. To, to, to share with you from Scripture and consider well your relationship with our Father in heaven. The word heart itself needs to be defined a little bit and clarified. In Hebrew, the word heart is the, is the word lab or labab. It doesn't refer simply, of course, to the organ that pumps blood. It means something like this. It's really referring to the center of who you are. It's what you really think. It includes your will. It includes your emotions. In the Old Testament, we could start with the book of Genesis. The first use of the word heart is in Genesis chapter 6. We know the story of the coming flood. In Genesis 6, verse number 5, it says, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 6 uses the word heart again. It says, it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him at his heart. That's an interesting verse. It's, uh, when it talks about God repenting, it doesn't mean that God is regretting a mistake or an error. It's really what scripture, what, what theologians call an anthropomorphism, I believe, which basically means that the language is used in a way that humans can understand. And the author, the writer, was describing. God as if he were a man, even though we know he's not. So when it says that God was grieved at his heart, he's not grieved exactly in the same way you and I are. He's not regretting what he had done before. But it does touch him in a way that's hard for us to understand and really probably hard to put in words. Well, the first use guideline of of the word heart Gives us some pretty strong indications that it really is all-encompassing of of, of, of what we are on the inside. For example, Genesis chapter forty-five. If you'd like to go to the end of the book of Genesis and look at the word heart, you might re you might remember the story of Joseph being taken into Egypt, and Jacob thought he was dead. And we have this little verse here. It says. And sons of Jacob told Joseph, Joseph is yet alive. He's the governor over all the land of Egypt. And then it says that Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. Well, we can kind of imagine his surprise, but he didn't believe them. And that's what caused his heart to faint. In this this case, it's really using the word heart to indicate the intellect and the mind. Well, you and I might say the brain. And the New Testament use of the word heart comes from the word cardia, the Greek word cardia. Of course, we're familiar with cardia as in a medical term, in terms of a cardiac care center or a, or a cardiologist who is a heart doctor. But the word cardia in Greek means middle, it's the middle of your body, it's the middle of your being. It's the center, and it really refers to what you think and feel about a person or a situation. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus used the word heart several times, a number of times. Let me read one example of this. In Matthew 15, beginning of verse 18, Jesus used the word heart in this manner. Jesus said, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. All these things come out of the heart. That's not talking about the organ that pumps blood. It's not only talking about the brain. It's really talking about the, the the." not a part of the body as, as really as a, at all. It's really talking about what you really are on the inside, the real core of who you are, the middle part of you. Matthew 24, 48, you'll probably recognize this, talking about the second coming of Jesus, and there is a, a parable in that respect. And in the parable, you have an evil servant, and the evil servant says something like this. He says, he'll, he said in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. Well, he said it in his heart. Really, it was a thought. It was a, we might say it was a thought that entered his head, that he was convinced was true. Now, in the ancient world, they did not associate thinking only with the head the way you and I do, Typically we're familiar with a little more about with the physiology of the body and the anatomy and we can even talk about the frontal lobe of the brain where most of our rational thinking takes place but of course the ancients didn't have that sense of the situation at all in fact they associated your thinking to a large degree and this seems a little strange but not quite as strange as you might first think but they associated much of your thinking with your abdomen with this part of your body, the part that's between your shoulders and your belt, <laughs> your gut, your insides, your internal part. And so the word heart, used in that respect, talked about the real you, the life of you. While they didn't know everything there is to know about the organ that pumps blood, they did know that if someone runs out of blood, they perish they did know that there was a a, a small thump in the middle of your chest. And if that little thump stopped, you died. And they understood that the thumping was somehow connected to the blood moving around and that the life was in the blood. So they knew that by just experience without doing a lot of... uh, cutting of people open and things of this nature, but just the experience of life. So they, they understood that there is something in the middle part of you that is the living part of you. And so the ancients associated that as the real you. The real you is, is, is in many respects connected with this word heart. And even in modern times, <laughs> even in, in our time, we have idioms that reflect the real you is being connected to your heart. And this, this, is, this is not completely strange to us. Um, you know, for example, sometimes when you have a difficult problem that arises suddenly or a difficult decision, where do you feel it? You feel it in your abdomen. You feel fear in your abdomen. Someone says, I have, I have butterflies in my stomach. Or i'm so nervous about something that you vomit or you're so stressed or worried you feel that in, in 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 the inner part of your being difficult decisions that you're laboring over you lose your appetite you feel it in your in your the inner part of you many of our idioms actually reflect this the emotion of love i mean if a young man wants to win a girl he Probably this is not a great line if he says, I love you with all of my brain. <laughs> She'll say, what? <laughs> Try again. <laughs> if you have a, a problem or a difficult decision that you can't, you're not sure what to do. And you ask a friend and he says, well, I think you should just go with your gut. What does that mean? It's just it's a reflection that, that uh, even in our own time in our own language that we have a sense that we're more than just a brain and that there's something that's happening. And, and 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 so the word heart is really what I'm trying to describe for you is this. The word heart is encompassing the all all of you. It encompasses your thinking and your logic and your rational processes, but it encompasses your emotions, your will your motives, it encompasses the hidden parts of you, the parts of you that you yourself don't know very well. And that really is going to be something we need to look at today pretty closely. The part of you that is there that you don't know well, maybe a part of you that others see that you have overlooked and that you don't see in yourself. So the question really could be asked now as we move along quickly, what does it mean to have a pure heart or a clean heart? The words are essentially synonymous. If you look up clean heart and pure heart and you want to do a little word study about all that, it's pretty much just what it sounds like, whether you look at Hebrew or Greek or however you want to come, but it just essentially is what we would assume. It's an empty, pure, morally or ceremonially innocent condition, morally or ceremonially innocent. That's a pure heart. That's a clean heart. And we're familiar with this uh, in many respects. Already this morning, we read in Psalm 51, verse 10, we ran across the term clean heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. What What is that clean heart? What does that mean to have a clean heart? Psalm 42 Excuse me, it's Psalm twenty-four, rather. Psalm twenty-four, verse four. It speaks of a, a righteous man. And it says, He that hath clean hearts, clean hands, excuse me, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. So it gives us a few clues, begins to describe this idea of a pure heart. Clean hands. In the New Testament, the terminology appears a number of times. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul uses it in this context. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, The end of the commandment, that means the goal of the commandment, the goal of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. We do get some indicators in the Word of God that whatever a pure heart and a clean heart is, to obtain that pure heart is going to be a bit difficult. Now let me read for you a couple of passages from the Old Testament that give us an indication of the difficulty of obtaining a pure heart. There's a book that's overlooked a great deal, that is worthy of time, and that's Ecclesiastes. If you want something that's, if you're looking for a, a moment that'll be kind of thoughtful and heavy, go to Ecclesiastes. It's got a lot of heavy, deep thoughts. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3 has this to say that pertains to our topic. Ecclesiastes 9, 3, the writer says, This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun. But there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil. And madness is in their heart while they live. And after that they go to the dead. It's a pretty gloomy assessment of humanity. Our hearts are full of evil. And our hearts are full of madness. And then we die. Our life consists of madness in our hearts and evil in our hearts. Pretty gloomy outlook. So achieving a pure heart might be something difficult. Most of you are familiar with Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Proverbs chapter 20 has an interesting passage. <clears throat> it's really a question. Proverbs 20 goes like this. Who can say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. Who can say that? So evidently, obtaining a pure heart is not easy. This is something that's not some. we just can assume that we're going to measure up in a good form. Well, I'd like to give you now the seven marks of a pure heart. So if you have any paper there and you'd like to write down the seven marks of a pure heart, it might be worth your time. The list could be probably expanded or perhaps shrunk slightly, but I think that this list of seven items is, is pretty good, uh, that is, it's, it's been thought through. I've I consulted a number of other sources and wise men. So I'm going to give you the, the seven marks of a pure heart, and the question for each of us this morning is, how well do you measure up? Now, the, the first marks that we're going to look at, the first three are what I call the easy ones. And you might, might do okay here. Let's just see. All right, here's the first mark of a pure heart. You, good do, you do good deeds, and you truly do not expect something in return for your good deed. That's the first mark of a pure heart. You do good deeds. You are a philanthropist. You are a good deed-doer. And you don't expect anything in return. Now, not everyone makes that cut. It's probably many of us can think of someone who does a good deed and remembers that that favor they did. And they they have a good memory and they're kind of expecting something down the road. A return. Some kind of reciprocal Payback. But, perhaps you're not that way. You do good deeds and you really really have no expectation. No expectation of any favor being returned. That's good. That's the first mark of a pure heart. How about this one? The second mark of a pure heart. You do your good deeds in an obscure manner. Not to be seen of men. I mean, the Bible instructs us to give our alms and our charitable giving ought to be in this way. So you do your good deeds in an obscure manner, not to be seen of men. Now, we're aware that to give charitably and to do so in a way that would bring praise back to yourself is, that's not really. That's that's pretty poor quality. (laughs) So most of us might do all right on item number two. Let's go to the third mark of a pure heart. The third mark of a pure heart is is humility. You're humble. You're humble, and you demonstrate in the following way. Here's a good way to demonstrate humility. When something positive occurs... You don't care who gets the credit, even though you're the one that's most responsible. Something positive has occurred, and you're the one who made it happen. And you don't care if somebody else gets the credit. You're just happy that something good happened. You don't care if someone else gets the credit for that good deed. It's a mark of humility. It's a mark of true humility. It's a very good quality. But those are the easy marks. These three. You do good deeds. You don't expect anything in return. You do your good deeds quietly in a very obscure way. And you're humble enough that when something good occurs and you deserve the credit, you're okay with somebody else getting the credit. But I'd like to note something. It's my observation that many non-Christians, even atheists and agnostics, may display these qualities. I can think of a few people I've known who, near as I can tell, have no regard for God, but they act in the following, in, in the way that I've just described. And basically, these three marks, as having a pure heart, basically what they really qualify you for is just being a very nice person. You're a very nice person, and that's good. It's good to have be a, a, a nice person, a quality person, a really great guy. But that's not a pure heart. Being a nice person isn't enough. You're still unregenerate. And you'll still be headed for hell and eternal damnation. Because good deeds, well done deeds, nicely done deeds, isn't enough. So we need to go a little further. The first three marks of having a pure heart are something that many, of, many people can attain by good breeding and training as a youth, as a child, and brought up well. And perhaps their nature just inclines them in that direction. But the last four marks are something quite different now. The final four marks of a pure heart require a unique intensity of spiritual grace. And I think you probably could argue, in all fairness, that without the grace of our Father in heaven, the final four marks of a pure heart are not attainable with human effort. So let's start with the one that is the most well-known of these spiritual graces, that denote a pure heart, and the first one won't surprise you. I hope it doesn't surprise you. The first one, which is the fourth on our list, is something that I believe that a <clears throat> few agnostics or atheists would reflect upon and seek to practice, but it's fundamental for Christians and Christianity, and that is you're, you are ready to forgive quickly even those who don't do not deserve it. You're ready to forgive quickly, even those who do not deserve it. Now, there are a lot of passages in the New Testament that emphasize forgiveness. There's a great deal that can be said in this area. Many of you will recognize Ephesians 4.32. That one is a common verse that lays it out in a simple, clear way that often children are taught You'll recognize this, be kind one to another. Well, okay, that's great. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So the second portion of the verse has a pretty powerful thought. God has forgiven us, we ought to forgive others. As our statements of faith tell us, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's many other places. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, reads like this, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Or how about this one? In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has these words regarding forgiveness. Jesus said, take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. So if someone offends you, let him know. <laughs> and then he repents and you forgive him. But here's the next one. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, And seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Well, after the second or third offense, most of us would begin to say, I don't think he means it. (laughs) He says he's sorry, he doesn't mean it. This is the third time today. He clearly is not getting it. His repentance is not genuine. Well, that's not for you or I to judge even at the most literal interpretation, you've got to get up to seven times. You've got to do it seven times. You have to forgive him. But probably the seven is, a, is, 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 a, is a, just a parabolic allegorical number. It means no matter how many times, an infinite number of times. All right, but now all of us are somewhat for familiar with this, this particular point. How important forgiveness is. And that shouldn't be a surprise. If you're a serious-minded Christian, you know that you should be ready to forgive quickly, even those who do not deserve it. Even those who do not deserve it. Even those who do not deserve it. That's not easy. But as a mature Christian, I suppose you recognize and acknowledge that that is your bounden duty. And that that's the next mark of a pure heart. The fifth mark of a pure heart. And now we're going to be start moving more inward. It's going to require more and more introspection on your part. <laughs> so the fifth part, the fifth mark of a pure heart is this. You're without guile. You are without guile. That is... You think and act without mixed motives. That's what it means to be without guile. Thinking and acting without mixed motives. There's very few of us that that conduct our lives and make decisions and take action without mixed motives. That is, you may assume that I'm doing this particular task or I'm doing this particular deed for one reason and one reason alone. And usually that is not the case. Human beings are much more complex and layered than that. And yes, we have our primary drives and our primary motives, but there are often hidden drives, hidden motives that are there and identifiable if you pause to look for them and think about, think on them. And those mixed motives mean that you may be doing it, on the one hand, for good, on the other hand, for some other selfish reason. Now, being without guile means you do not operate with mixed motives. Probably the most famous line regarding the use of the word guile is when Jesus met, or rather. Jesus encountered, shall we say, Nathanael. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. In whom there is no guile. And then Nathanael follows it up. Whence knowest thou me? How did you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. That is to say, Jesus already perceived a lot about Nathaniel's life before Nathaniel even met him. And God was already working in Nathaniel's life. And that leads me to this thought. Is it possible for humans that in a fallen condition... To act without mixed motives. To what degree is it possible? To what degree is it possible for you to go through a day and make choices and decisions filled with good deeds, good works, kind things that you've said, right things you've said, proper activities, and to do all of those without any mixed motives? Without thinking, how will others perceive this? Without thinking, what reward might come back in my direction? I'm not sure. I don't have an answer to what degree it is possible for you and I to act without mixed motives. That is, to be truly a person without guile. Well, I think it's worth thinking about. Well, that's question number five. That's Mark number five. And if we just stopped right there with just four and five, we're really beginning to separate out those who are really seeking a pure heart and those who aren't. But let's go to number six. Number six. <clears throat> the next mark of a pure heart is this, you are more suspicious and concerned about your own potential hidden sin than you are the hidden sin in other people. You're more worried about your own hidden sin than the hidden sin in the lives of others. Now, it's pretty easy for most of us to think of someone we know and say, that person has some hidden sin. Or they think it's hidden, but I know it. I see it. You might be right. You're, You're probably right. But that's not completely to your credit to be so eager to point it out. Because a pure heart one that's striving for your pure heart, is deeply and intensely concerned about their own hidden sin. Is worried about their own hidden sin. Because they understand that the health of their soul depends on discovering and rightly dealing with your own hidden sin. So, Psalm chapter 19 makes a passing reference of this. Let me read for you from Psalm 19. I'm going to break into verse 12. It probably would be good for you to turn there and follow along. Several of these next verses are pretty important in our discussion today. As we think about <clears throat> potential hidden sin in our own lives and how important it is that we are deeply concerned and suspicious of ourself. So Psalm 19, in verse 12, asks a question. Who can understand his secret, excuse me, who can understand his errors? Now the pronoun his is not referring to God. It's not referring to other people. It's referring to yourself. We could read it something like this. Who can understand his own secret errors? His own errors. See, it's a rhetorical question. And then it follows up in the the next line in verse 12. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Secret faults. What secret faults do you have? Faults that you are not aware of. Job chapter 42 is interesting. Now, I don't have time to go through the entire story of Job, so I'll summarize. If you'd like to look at the book of Job and go to the end of the book of Job, verses 42, 1 through 7, we find that Job gives his final response to God, and things begin to finally settle out. So you may recall the story of Job. Let me recap. In the beginning of Job's life, in the beginning of the story, terrible things happen to Job. Great calamity. God allows Satan to bring forth great calamities and tragedies in the life of Job. Job is confused and doesn't understand why. Three of his friends come to visit him. And most of the book of Job is a long dialogue between the three friends and Job. So the friends of Job begin to discuss with him why this calamity, why these tragedies occurred. And essentially, their advice runs something like this. Job, everyone knows that you're a good man, a quality person, but there must be some secret faults and secret sins in your life. Otherwise, God would not be punishing you. God would not allow this punishment to be imposed upon you through Satan or some other source. So there must be something in your life, Job, that is not right. Some secret sin, hidden faults. That's the advice of his friends. Job's response is, I can't think of a thing. I've been looking and thinking about it. And I, in all honesty, I've reflected on my life. And I just can't come up with anything that really jumps out of me in any way. So I'm still not understanding. I'm confused. And finally, we get to the latter chapters of Job. And God begins to speak to Job and says to him, Job, you know, you're not quite as a quality a person as you might think. After all, I know you think you're a wise man, but you're, you're not as wise as me. I know you think you're a smart man, but you're not as smart as me. God says, you weren't around when I created the earth. You weren't around when I carved the canyons and made the mountains and the oceans and created all these creatures. And God begins to describe Job's limited vision and limited sense of things. And finally, Job, in chapter 42, it dawns on him. Yes, I really am a man with faults, with secret sins. And then he responds in verse 6. Chapter 42, verse 6, is Job's right and proper final response. When he says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. But that's not quite the end. Verse 7 tells us that God was pleased with Job's response. And he says, great, finally we've, I've gotten you where you need to be. Now let's straighten out your three friends. And he tells Job, I'm angry with them. They didn't give you particularly good advice. Well, they were very busy to tell you, apparently correctly, that yes, you've got some faults. They never stopped to consider their own. And I'm angry with them for that. And I need you, Job, to pray for them. Because you have now learned what they have yet to perceive. The book of Job can be pretty interesting if you like to really reflect on these kind of philosophical things from a biblical point of view about human nature. But going a little further, let me give you one more passage from Scripture, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27. Remember, we're on our sixth mark, and the sixth mark of a pure heart is, you are more suspicious and concerned about your own potential hidden sin than the hidden sin in other people's lives. Job's three friends were deeply concerned about the hidden sin in Job's life, but they never paused to think about the hidden sin in their own life. Well, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, is kind of a unique verse it has a phraseology that is kind of a you know it's, it's it the image of it is is interesting verse 27 it says says this the spirit of man is the candle of the lord searching all the inward parts of the belly now certainly it's not talking about the contents of your stomach whether you had wheat checks or a banana for breakfast It's not searching that aspect of your belly. It's searching the inner part of you, the part that we've been talking about, the, the, the real you, wherever the real you resides inside your physical body, the real you. That's what the word belly is referring to. And then it says the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, a candle illuminates something, doesn't it? Well, it turns out that God can see our innermost parts very easily. He doesn't need his own light source because our own self, we reveal it to him. Our own spirit, our own own being is illuminating our own inner self in such a way that God sees right through us, even though we cannot. I recall some years ago, a discussion I saw on, on the news. There was a gentleman who is the Department of Defense, uh, head of the Department of Defense. His name was Donald Rumsfeld. Some of you might remember Donald Rumsfeld, if you've got some age on you. And the United States was at war in Afghanistan or Iraq. I forget which one of those wars. At any rate, Donald Rumsfeld was giving a press conference. And they were asking him questions about the affairs of the war. And he says, well, you know, the thing that concerns me the most are the unknown unknowns. And a reporter said, well, what do you mean by that, Mr. Rumsfeld? And he said, well, there are known unknowns, and there are known knowns, and there are unknown unknowns. And they said, I, I, I can't keep up with you. You're, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> so he had to explain a little bit. He said, well, a known known in the realm of war would be something like this. You know that the enemy has an army, and the army consists of a certain number of tanks and combat planes and soldiers. It's a danger. It's a risk. It's something I must be concerned with. There is an enemy, and I know what the dangers are associated with that enemy. That is a known known. A known unknown unknown is you say, well, there's another army over here. I don't know much about it. I don't know how many tanks they've got. I don't know how many combat aircraft they've got. I don't know how many men they have under training. That worries me. This I can prepare for. This I can perhaps prepare for. But then Donald, excuse me, yeah, Donald Rumsfeld, Then Donald Rumsfeld said, what keeps me awake at night are the unknown unknowns. It's the danger that I don't even know exists. The things that I've overlooked. The the risks that our intelligence agencies haven't discovered yet. What is it we don't know about? We've discovered this, and this, and this, and this. We've discovered these various risks and errors, problems, these dangers. And we're in the process of determining how great they are. But what about the danger and the risk that we haven't discovered yet? He says, it's the unknown unknowns that worry me. Now that's what ought to worry all of us, you see. Because we have the same conditions, we have known knowns. We have our the 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 weaknesses in ourself that we know about and we guard against. I know. Well, this is something small and trivial, but you say, I know. I have a weakness for chocolate, and I know I have a propensity to put on weight easily. So I guard against it by avoiding places that sell chocolate as a personal habit. And I know this is important for my life. It's a known known. It's a real risk. For the sake of my ongoing health, I avoid that. I know what the risk is. I have a strategy to deal with it. In our own lives, though, there'll be known unknowns I know I've got a a risk. I've got a weakness in this area of life. I haven't really developed any good sense of how to manage it. I know I have a problem of oh, let's say lust, a common problem that many men have, if not all men. But I haven't really, I haven't really dealt with it in a effective way. I don't have a strategy. I know I've got the problem, but I don't know how to deal with it. But the greatest challenges are the unknown unknowns in our lives. The dangers that exist within my soul, my own weaknesses that I haven't recognized yet. Lust, pride, an exceptionally slippery sin pride but one of the slipperiest of all sins hardest to recognize in your own life you think you've swept it away and lo and behold it's crept back in but there may be many of this nature that are you don't see you haven't perceived god knows the candle in our belly has revealed it to our Father in heaven. He sees it, but we don't. And maybe it's because we haven't looked very hard, you see. We haven't taken the time to really look, look real hard. <clears throat> so item six is, is, is difficult to have a pure heart in the sense that we're willing to take the hard, long look that is required and concern ourselves with our own hidden sin more than the sins and the hidden sins of other folks. And last, we have item seven, the last mark of a pure heart. Do you abhor sin? Now, the word abhor means to find disgusting You detest it. Job, when he finally perceived his own sinful condition and discovered that there was pride and other hidden sins in his life, he said, I abhor myself. Well, I'm not here to teach self-loathing or self-hatred or anything of that nature. I don't want anyone running out of here and saying, well, I think I'll just end it all. (laughs) That's not the point. And that wasn't Job's point. Job didn't become suicidal. Job was intensely honest, not suicidal. Intensely honest with himself. So the seventh mark of a pure heart is that you abhor sin. Not just avoid it, but you absolutely refuse it. Now many people, many of us perhaps... We'll avoid sin without abhorring sin, without finding it detestable, without hating that sin. We avoid it, but we don't really hate it. We don't abhor it. Now, how so? How can this be? Well, there's a number of reasons why. You might find a man who avoids sin because he is simply, in a rational and logical way, he has decided that it is completely sensible to avoid that sin. Doesn't mean he hates it. Doesn't mean he detests it. He just says it's, it's logical and sensible to avoid it. Consider a man who is a former gambler. He's a practical gambler. He's finally come to the conclusion that it just doesn't pay off. It just doesn't pay off. I just, I've, I've, I've finally deduced that it's not going to pay off in life, so why do it? The problem of that, of course, is that it's still stealing. It's still obtaining that which is not yours. And he hasn't forsworn gambling because it's wrong. He's forsworn gambling because it's not working out very well. And there's a big difference. He avoids the sin, but he doesn't detest it. He doesn't hate it. He doesn't abhor it. Another man might avoid sin because he fears the penalty of getting caught. Consider someone who has dabbled in pornography, but decides he'd better stop and does so, because he's afraid his wife might discover it. And that'll be an awful lot of trouble. He doesn't detest the sin. He doesn't abhor it. He simply has decided that the penalty of getting caught is greater, a greater price than what I wish to pay. How about a man who avoids sin simply to uphold his own reputation? People do that. You don't abhor the sin, but you avoid a certain sin because... You don't want the bad reputation that may come from it. Perhaps it's avoiding alcohol because you don't want to run the risk of drunkenness. You don't want people to know and discover and have your reputation damaged. And finally, there's those who avoid sin, but that's only because they can no longer indulge in it. They're not capable of indulging in it any longer. Here's a story that a few people will recognize. I've told it a time or two. (laughs) My father spent some time in a nursing home, as many of you know. One of the gentlemen that he was assigned a room with to share was in pretty bad shape. Couldn't get out of bed, really. Couldn't. He could feed himself, but not easily. They had to clean him up and take care of normal bathroom functions for him because he couldn't get out of bed. But he was a jolly fellow. Mm -hmm. His mental faculties were fine. His body was failing him, but his mind was good. He would greet me, recognize me, we'd chat. He'd smile, he'd tell me some old stories. He didn't seem to be particularly despondent about being in the nursing home. Much more talkative than my father. <laughs> it's hard talking to my dad, if you recall. He was so hard of hearing. <laughs> one day while I was in the room with the two of them, one of the, a, a, a nurse came in. And the, the, this chatty, chatty fellow made a really, really lewd, vulgar comment about her, her body. It invited her to come over closer so he could have a better look. And I was, at first I was stunned. Because this is a man who can't even get out of bed. This is a man who, it would be utterly impossible for him to physically indulge in any outward form of lust in a real way. But he was fully engaged in that sin in his mind. In this case, he was a a dirty old man. He was a he would have been an adulterer if he had the ability. He was just too old and fat. He could not be an adulterer, but he would have wished that he could have. (laughs) It's a sad and maybe humorous story, but it's it actually isn't very funny. Because it's pretty insightful into human nature. The fact that he was utterly incapable of indulging in a sin that probably he had indulged in throughout much of his life. Now he was completely incapable of it. So he avoided the sin of fornication, he avoided the sin of adultery. <laughs> But he certainly didn't abhor it, didn't dislike it, didn't detest it. But those of a pure heart won't be like any of the people we've just been discussing. Those with a pure heart will abhor sin. They detest the sin. And for lack of a better analogy, consider this. Imagine you have a two-year-old, a strong-willed, stubborn, two-year-old. Not one of the easygoing type, a strong-willed, stubborn two-year-old. And you want them to eat something, and they don't want to eat it. And so you work very hard to shove it in their mouth. And they will not open up because they don't like it. They will not open that little jaw, no matter how much you spank them and threaten them. And after 30 or 40 minutes... And you telling yourself, I'm going to win this war. And that little two-year-old saying, I am going to win the war, not you. So it is a real battle of the wills. And you finally prevail by prying the little mouth open and shoving it in. And pushing up on the jaw. I've won. No, you haven't. Because now he won't swallow. <laughs> And he sits there, and you say, swallow, swallow, and they just sit. They will not swallow. Well, it's not a perfect parallel, but is our detestation and our abhorrence of sin as strong as that little two-year-old's abhorrence and detestation of the vegetable that you were trying to get him to swallow? That's what it means to abhor sin. No one is going to cram it into you. Not only do you avoid it, you flee from it. Not only do you flee from it, when it is confronted and someone tries to force it upon you, you stubbornly refuse to get involved. Do you abhor sin? That's a pure heart. So the questions can be asked this morning, <clears throat> to what degree do we have... <laughs> A pure heart. Just looking at the four latter criteria, those that require a great deal of spiritual grace if we're to have any hope of attaining them, to what degree do you forgive? To what degree do you act without mixed motives? (laughs) To what degree do you worry about your own secret sins more than the secret sins of others? And to what degree do you truly Abhor sin. Well, those are the things that might be worthy of our reflection on this day. You know, I'd like the congregation to take a few minutes now. And it's been quite some time, I think, since we've had a had an altar call. But I'd like to do that this morning. And, and Julie, if you'd care to go to the piano, I'd, I'd like to just invite anyone to come to the front. If you think maybe you need a little more spiritual reflection. Now, some of you have been in evangelical churches where altar calls are very frequent. Some of you are familiar with congregations that altar calls never occur. The purpose of an altar call is, is not to try to identify those who have more problems than other people. That's ridiculous. That's wrong purpose of the altar call is not to on the other hand to try to demonstrate that you're more spiritual than the next guy the purpose of the altar call is to just to demonstrate that you're you're, you're kind of serious this, you've decided I'm serious with God and I'm going to show that I'm going to show that seriousness right here yes indeed in front of other people So I'm not going to ask anyone to come up for the purpose of divulging your troubles or your sins. I'm just going to ask you to consider whether or not it'd be appropriate for you to demonstrate a real seriousness about your relationship with God. Because it's about your relationship with God, not your relationship with your neighbor. That's not this is not the time for that. Not really. Our relationship with our neighbor is gonna be dependent on having a right relationship with God first. So Julie, if you'd like to play a couple verses, let's go to 342. If we open up to hymn 342, why don't we sing the first and the second verse? And if anybody would care to come up to the altar and be kneeling, We'll have a a general prayer at the conclusion.